Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast, where we share biblical teaching to glorify God and to bless you. This year, we're talking about my part, God's plan. God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is a part of God's bigger plan for the world. Now, if you connect with what you hear today, I hope you'll join us online Sundays at 10 a.m., or that you'll join us on-site right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's jump into today's teaching, and don't forget, you're part of God's We are back in the book of Acts this morning. You may have forgotten that we started a series on Acts because we've been distracted by a few other things the last few weeks, but we're back in Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts 2, starting in verse 42. So let me set the stage for this. This is after the first Christian sermon that was preached on Pentecost. So the first disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches a sermon all about Jesus, and then 3,000 people are baptized, and we come to this verse, Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property, and they sold possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who are being saved. I love watching a house built. Does anybody else like this? Like if a house is being built in your neighborhood, you'll find yourself kind of driving out of the way on the way home to see the progress they've made on the house that day. Isn't that cool to see a house take shape? I mean, from the moment the bulldozers come in and level the site to the foundation being poured to the framing that goes up and then eventually shingles and sheetrock and all that stuff, windows, all that is filled in on the house. It's just a cool thing to see. I love it. I was with a guy who builds houses in Montana a few weekends ago. And I asked him the question I've always wanted to know and never took the time to Google, which is, how do y'all keep pipes from bursting up north? He said, oh, that's easy. We bury all the pipes six feet underground, and they come up in the middle of the house instead of on the outside. He said, in Memphis, you put your hot water heater out in the backyard. (laughs) He's like, what? I don't know why y'all do that. I don't know either. Froze last night, and the whole time I was panicky. I was dripping all the faucets, right? Okay. You just think about how everything, all the way down to that unseen level, what's happening below ground, the foundation, and the frame, all of that is important. All of that unseen stuff is holding the weight of this house. So I want you to think with me about what's happening in Acts 2, at the very beginning of the church. It's the foundation moment of the church. Paul's really clear that the foundation of the church, this is in 1 Corinthians 3, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ and none other. That's 1 Corinthians 3. It's on that foundation that the church is built. And what we see in Acts 2 is the spirit of Jesus is poured out on the followers of Jesus. Peter preaches this great sermon about Jesus as king over all. 3,000 are baptized, and so 
this is when that foundation is being laid, the Jesus foundation, right here, the beginning of Acts 2. These last four or five verses of Acts 2, we might think of as the framework beginning to go up. So the foundation is laid by the, the master, and then the laborers come in, and they're looking at the designs of this building, and they start putting up the frame. And so what we're going to see in Acts 2, 42 through 47, is the frame of the church taking shape. And what we're told is that they devoted themselves to these practices. And that word's really important. They devoted themselves. What that means is that they were committed to these four practices I'm going to show you in an ongoing daily fashion. What that word means is persistence or to persevere in despite the odds. Okay, so this wasn't just a one-time thing that they threw together. What that word implies was they believed that these practices had to stay strong for the church to survive. Otherwise, if you're going to stick with the image, it'd be like the house that starts to lean. Even though the foundation is good, the house starts to lean. It's like those barns you drive by in middle Tennessee and, you know, they're just kind of leaning a little bit. Okay, it's kind of like that. They have this sense that if they don't persevere in these four practices, that eventually this great house that God is building will lean and maybe fall. So here's the four practices. Did you see them? They devoted themselves to what? Four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Four things. And the verses that follow put meat or flesh out what those four things mean. So the people who think about this have said that those four things were not optional for the first church. They viewed them as essential. This was the frame that was also going to contribute to holding the weight of this building that God is, is building. But those who've thought about it have also said that those four things are the essential framework for any good church today. This guy, Dean Pinter, said this, none of these marks are optional signs, as if someone looking at them could say, well, we have three out of the four, that isn't bad. Rather, all these elements together are signs of those who are hungry for life, filled with the Spirit, and devoted to Christ. It'd be, it'd be like if you showed up to your house is being built, contractors out there, and let's say there's, there's four beams that are going to be bearing weight, load-bearing beams in this house. And you come to the contractor and you're like, how are we doing? And he says, well, we got three out of the four beams, and so we think we're probably going to be okay. We're just going to press on. It really does seem like these four practices that were the first things the church committed themselves to have this kind of eternal significance. But there's something that any church, any good church today should pay attention to. And so over the next few weeks, I'm just going to talk about each of them. And because of that video that we started with, the great story about the abbots, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to save the apostles' teaching for next week. And I'm going to look at the middle two this week. They devoted themselves to fellowship and breaking of bread. And here's my hope as we talk through these over the next few weeks. I'm not going to tell you anything in, this, in these four weeks that's going to just rock your world. I'm not about being radical up here. I'm about reminding you of the essence of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And my hope is, as we're heading into the new year, that you might pick one of these four categories in which you make some resolution, some commitment. I'm going to pursue that in 2023. 
And I think if you do, our church would be blessed by it. Let's talk about fellowship and breaking of bread. Did you notice how many times the word together was in those six verses? Did anybody see that? I put it in yellow so you would notice it. It was three times in six verses. It talks about the church being together. They were together, they met together, and they ate together. Pay attention to that. Because they believe that Jesus was king over all, one of their first commitments is what? To be together. Just to be together. How many of you remember the first time you came back to church after COVID? You remember that? You were wearing a mask, so you were probably mad. But you came back to church. You remember that? And you remember the feeling you had when you were back in here with your church family worshiping? And it was special at home, worshiping maybe with your family, your kids, and doing communion with them. And all that was special and it was great. But you remember what it was like to sing with these people again? Brishan and I were up here on stage every week. And so I just remind you that everybody didn't come back at once. It was, a, it was kind of a slow burn, okay? Or, the, or the, the tide just kind of gradually rose as people came back. And so Brishan and I got to stand up here every week. And every week was a treat for us because we were looking out. And every Sunday, there was somebody who was back for the first time. And you just see these, the joy on their face, or at least in their eyes, because you couldn't see that. I can't tell you how many people came up to me after coming back for the first time and said something to the effect of, I forgot what I was missing. I'm so glad I'm back. We've done some difficult studies together as a church recently, and um, one of those was on gender and sexuality. It, it went terrifically, but several people had to miss it. And so they would email us and ask if we recorded it. Well, we record everything. We have Russ Terman. So, of course, it was recorded, okay? But I would email back to him and be like, yes, I'll send this to you. But here would, here's our strong preference as your leaders, elders, and staff. Our strong preference is that you would come and watch the replays of these studies on Wednesday night with your church family instead of watching it at home by yourself. And it's not because we're trying to annoy you or to be difficult. It's because we think there is a different power present when you are with the body of Christ than when you're home alone. We think that when two or three are gathered, the Lord is there. And if we're going to study something difficult together, we really want the Lord to be there with you. One of the first things the church realizes and commits themselves to is to be together daily, to be together daily. Now, here's what I've thought about as I've, as I've poured over that word daily, which sh shows up several times in this passage. At what, at what point did it move from daily to weekly? And then at what point did it move from weekly to monthly? You know, the average number of times an American goes to church, a church-going American goes to church in a month these days? 1.8 times a month. That includes Wednesday nights, 1.8. Um, I know you got ball games. I know you got that lake house. I know you got things going on. It does make me wonder what the cost will be for a church. If we go from being together daily to monthly. What will the cost be of that? 
What would the cost be in your own family? If you go from being with the people of God daily to once a month. Just think about that. You might consider as a goal for the new year, I want to be together with the people of God more. I think it'd be good for me. Think about that. All right, so they believe there was power in being together, one. But there's kind of layers of being together, or there's layers of fellowship is the word. And, and so that's why I'm grouping together fellowship and breaking of bread, because they weren't just together daily. Did you see what they were doing together daily? They were eating together. They were breaking bread together. So when you hear that word breaking bread, what do you think about? Lord's Supper, right? And it's really not clear that that's what they're talking about in this passage. Eventually, breaking bread comes to mean sharing of the Lord's Supper, the communion meal that we take every week together. But breaking bread was a practice that every Jewish family or Jewish gathering, every time they got together to eat a meal. So if you, if you got together with your friends or if you got together with the family, whether it was just the evening meal, the morning meal, whether it was a big shindig and party, whatever, every time you got together, it started with breaking bread. Somebody would take the bread, they would break it, and then they would pass it around to one another at the, at the meal. And it was a way of binding everybody together. We're all eating the same thing. And so what it seems like the early church believed, because this had been passed down to them, is that part of what it means to be the people of God is to get together and eat. And eat. Amen. I got an amen here. Somebody's hungry, probably. They're like, Eric, finish this thing up. Okay. Part of what it means to be the people of God is to eat together. We planted a church in January called the Oikos Church. They're doing great. They're in East Memphis, just doing wonderful kingdom work. And they have six core disciplines, so six things that they want every Oikos member to commit themselves to. And one of those things is to eat together. I love that. I think about Acts 15. It's this really critical moment in the early church's life. The Gentiles are coming into this Jewish movement before that, and they want them to come in. But of course, Jews and Gentiles are different, and it goes all the way down to what they eat. They eat different stuff. And so these guys are scratching their heads, and they're like, how are we going to be a church together if we can't eat together? And so they send them some instructions about what they should do. There's two instructions. One, you should avoid sexual immorality. We can talk about that. But two is you should avoid these foods. And the reason is so we can eat together. Apparently, that's what they saw as most important. Not all the other things we might do together. They wanted to preserve our ability to sit down at a table and eat together. I remember during COVID, we had this group of women who would come up here every week and um, they would sit out in the parking lot and they would bring lawn chairs, okay? And then they would bring a brown bag and they would sit out in the parking lot and they'd be social, socially distanced from each other and they'd take off their mask and they'd eat together. And they're just sitting out there in the parking lot, just smiling and bubbling like there was a power they knew. It wasn't enough to just call them up on the phone and check on them and see how they were doing. Those ladies wanted to eat with their friends. There's power in that. I mean, as you reflect on that, does it make more sense to you why Jesus Christ, when he institutes a way for us to remember what he did for us, chooses a meal? I mean, think about all the different things he could have chosen, ways for us to remember him, all the different ways he could have done it. And what he says is, you should get together and eat to remember me. Break bread, drink wine, 
to remember my body and blood broken. That's what you should do. Maybe you're thinking about um, a resolution for the new year and you're hearing this and you're like, maybe I should ask somebody to lunch today. Yes, you should. Yeah. Whether that's the Holy Spirit or Eric, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you this, in all of our years of doing church here, and we've been doing church here for 95 years, one, one thing that we have learned is the single best indicator of whether a new person will stay at Highland is if somebody takes them to lunch, if they eat with somebody. Because once you share a meal with somebody, that person's a friend. Okay, think about that. But let's come back to fellowship, fellowship and breaking of bread. That word fellowship is quanonia. Maybe you've heard that word before. And at one level, that word just means to be together, but there's a deeper level at which that word means to take care of the people you're together with. And so as you look at the rest of the passage, look at this in verse 44 with me. Because this, I think, is an explanation of the kind of togetherness that they were sharing. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That first phrase, all the believers, you see that? What it says is, because they believed, because they were believers now in this Jesus guy, they started selling all their stuff to meet the needs of those in the church family. And they did it with glad and sincere hearts, we're told. So let me read you this quote. This is from a guy named Aristides. He was an Athenian philosopher who converted to Christianity. And because he was a big deal, he got invited by the emperor Hadrian to come and defend Christians to him. Second century. And this is what he says. They, the Christians, they love one another. They don't overlook the widow and they save the orphan. Remember that video we just watched? The one who has ministers ungrudgingly to the one who does not have. When they see strangers, they take him under their roof and they rejoice over him as a true brother, for they do not call themselves brothers according to the flesh, but according to the soul. I love that. And whenever they see one of their poor has died, each one of them, according to his ability, contributes ungrudgingly and they bury him. And if they hear that some are condemned or imprisoned on account of the name of the Lord, they contribute for, that, for those condemned and they send to them what they need. And if it's possible, they redeem them. They buy them out of prison or out of slavery. And if there's any that is a slave or a poor man, listen to this, they fast two or three days. And what they were going to set before themselves, they send instead to them, considering themselves to give good cheer, even as they were called to give good cheer. Isn't that powerful? Because they believed, because they believed, they would skip Starbucks to give to their friends. When their friend was in trouble at church, when their church had a need, they would sell their TV. Give that money to the church. And you know the word that sticks out to me in there? Ungrudgingly. It's like, oh, it's time to do that? Sounds great. Let's give. Simon Sinek, maybe you've heard that name. He's an author, does other things. I heard this story recently from a friend. He was, Simon was working with Navy SEALs, you know, elite military unit, one of the most elite. 
And he asked this Navy SEAL, he says, who is the kind of person that makes it through BUDS, which is the Navy SEAL training program? And the guy said, I can't tell you who gets through, but I can tell you the kind who don't make it. The star college athletes that never have really been tested to the core of their being, none of them make it through. The preening leaders who like to delegate everything, none of them make it through. The big tough guys with huge muscles covered in tattoos that want to prove to everyone how tough they are, none of them make it through. He said, some of the guys who make it through are skinny and scrawny. He said, some of the guys who make it through, you'll see them shivering in fear. But every single one of them who makes it through, when they are emotionally exhausted, when they are physically exhausted, some way, somehow, they're able to dig down inside themselves, listen to this, to find the energy to help the person next to them. Service, he says, service, giving to another, having their backs is what makes the highest performing teams in the world. That's it. And there is not another team that has lasted for 2,000 years. Think about that. Why? Serving each other. So let me, let me wrap this up by saying a couple of things. We're, we're talking about the layers of fellowship that it's important for a church to share. It's important for you to be together. And if you're not here with us, think about how you can be with the body of Christ more. It's important for you to be together, whether that's in a small group, Sunday school class, or worshiping with us, it's important to be together. And it's important to share meals together. That's part of what makes Christians Christians. But hey, it's important to give to each other and to give to the church to help one another. Now, we have our Life-Giving Sunday on November 27th, a couple weeks away. And that's a Sunday we're going to take up a big collection. We're going to give it to missionaries and partners around the world. One of the pots that's created out of that giving is a pot that we use to help Highlanders when they're in need. And we don't market that a lot. You know, I don't tell stories about the, the bills, the MLGW bill we paid for a Highlander. Okay, because that's private and that's sensitive. Um, but that's happening all the time because of your giving. It's one of the things that makes us as a church is that we give to take care of each other. And that happens here. Or there's another pot and this comes out of our weekly contribution. So the money that you gave today, there's a pot that's created out of that weekly contribution that we use to pay for counseling when people need it. When couples come to us and they're in danger of divorce, we pay for their counseling. When somebody comes to us and they're depressed or in danger of hurting themselves, we pay for counseling. Now, I don't get up here on Sunday and say, hey, everybody, just for the record, these are the seven people whose counseling we're paying for this week. You know, it's private. I don't share that. But that's happening every single week. And you know why we're able to do that? It's because you're giving to help each other. And I know that giving's not easy, that you're probably going without something so that you can give to the church. I don't know what it is that you're going without, but when you go without something to give to the church, you're following in the line of this ancient heritage of people who, because they believed that Jesus was king over all, felt convicted to give up stuff and give to the church to help them out. You fall in line with them. And that's a beautiful heritage to be part of. You know, the ancient world really didn't have a concept of helping people who weren't your family. 
So you might help your brother or your sister, but you certainly wouldn't help somebody else. And so I love what Aristides tells Emperor Hadrian, because he's trying to get him to understand why these Christians would give up their stuff to help each other. And he says this, pay attention to this, you know, sear this into your memory. Think about this every time you drive onto our campus or you go to a small group or you show up here to serve. Think about what he said. This is what he said. They don't call themselves brothers according to the flesh. They call themselves brothers according to the soul. And that's why they do it. This is your family. This is your family. I'll tell you, over the last few weeks, as we've navigated this, this new announcement and the change that's coming with it, and I've talked with, with a couple of you who are struggling with this and trying to understand it, but want to believe in what we're doing. You know what I've heard again and again? It's been the sweetest thing. Is when someone has said, well... This is my church family. And so I'm going to be with them. Right. Let me pray over you. God, we're thankful to be part of your church family here. I pray that you would make us as committed as these first believers were to fellowship and breaking bread with one another. Don't let us take that lightly, God. Don't let us minimize that. It's so tempting to think, well, yeah, I know that, but then to not live that out. God, make this important to us. Make it essential to us. And God, my prayer is that you would grow us, that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved. But I believe, God, that you'll do that when you see we are fully together. May we be so for your sake and glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, you're dismissed. Don't forget about the fun stuff we got going on this afternoon. We'll see you then.